The Right Hook Podcast. With the Mitsubishi Outlander Business, the two-seater commercial SUV with over 2,000 litres of cargo space, two-ton towing capacity and legendary four-wheel drive technology. MitsubishiMotors.ie Now, parents whose children follow a vegan diet often come under intense scrutiny from those who argue that cutting out food groups at a young age can damage development and cause long-term health issues. But is raising your child to eat meat actually more extreme? Can mixed messages about animals as friends and then food be traumatic for young children to process? Well, joining me on the line to discuss this, I have spokesperson for the Vegan Society in the UK, Jimmy Pearson. Jimmy, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Simon. Jimmy, you would argue that uh, vegan diets actually give children the perfect start in life. Would that be right? Absolutely, very much so. Okay, and why is this, Jimmy? We're talking nutritionally. Mm -hmm. A balanced vegan diet provides everything you need for optimal health at any age and life stage, and that includes childhood and infancy. And that's the position of the British Dietetic Association, who are regarded as the qualified experts. But of course, it's more than just health benefits. It's about compassion and teaching children about the importance of treating all other living beings with respect and equality. Okay, so what about the argument from the other side then that would say that they're, if they are on a vegan diet, they're going to miss out on necessary proteins, etc., etc.? Well, there are only benefits to come from eating a wide range of plant-based foods free of animal products. You know, most people tend to focus on what vegans can't eat in a negative way, mm-hmm. seemingly forgetting how bad for us meat and dairy products can be and how you can get protein and calcium and all the other nutrients and minerals that people typically associate with animal products, you can get them equally in plant-based sources. And when you focus on what foods you can eat, you discover a huge variety of amazing foods that are really good for us. So is it really just a case, Jimmy, of... I was reading an article from The Guardian a few years back, and Helen Wilcock, who's a paediatrician dietitian and a member of the British Dietetic, Dietetic Association, she says that she tries to not be you know, judgmental when it comes to talking to parents about whether they want to or whether they don't want to start their kids on a vegan diet. Is it just a case of they just need to be informed? Is it information is the key? Absolutely. It's all about making an informed choice, actually. And and this is a, a point that I'd really like to make, is that most parents wouldn't dream of telling their kids where meat comes from, how animals are killed, presumably mm. because the truth is considered inappropriate for children. It's deemed too gory. But if the truth is too disturbing, surely we should stop funding it rather than to help it keep keep it hidden. So I think it's really important to children to understand where their food comes from, learn about nutrition, so that they make an informed choice that's based on facts and com- compassion and not just habit and long-standing practice and because everyone else eats it. But one of the, one of the big issues, Jimmy, that they, they would argue against it is to say that a vegan diet, it's not very... It isn't very energy dense. I mean, you have to eat a lot of food to get enough energy, but children typically don't eat a lot, so getting enough calories into them can be different. Well, well yeah, that, that is something, and we can't deny that children have smaller stomachs mm. than grown people, but the World Health Organization recommends that you breastfeed um, up to two years on top of um, starting to wean at six months. So that, um, goes, that goes a long way to alleviating that. Um, also eating little and often, um, but actually there, there is a misconception um, certainly about products like, um, sorry, minerals like calcium, because people think they're just they're just in dairy products. Yeah. But actually, they're in a whole array array of plant based sources, same kind of proportions, and actually have higher absorption levels. But Jimmy, getting down to the nitty gritty of it, I speak <laughs> as a father of four very young boys, and I struggle to get them to eat one vegetable 
with their dinner. Give me some advice and give me some help how I might broaden their horizons in terms of getting more veg onto their plate. It's a difficult question, isn't it? And everyone's different. <laughs> um, you could try getting them involved in the production of the food, mm-hmm. um, which in, should ho- hopefully pique their interest and they've got an active role in it to play a part in it, more likely to um, enjoy eating it. You could bung a load in smoothies um, with a few dates to sweeten it up and then you can, you can disguise and hide loads of healthy, green, leafy veg in smoothies. Um, that's a really good way of doing it. But an easy way of getting calcium into the kids is give them a yoghurt, isn't it? Uh, calcium? Yeah. Um, well, calcium is in a whole load of different plant-based sources. Uh, green leafy veg, almonds, tofu. Um, yeah, but get, yeah, but getting a child to try and eat a bit of tofu, Jimmy, takes a bit of wrangling, doesn't it? Uh, well, it depends on the child, doesn't it? Um, yeah, true. Uh, but my, my particular advice on getting calcium into children would be to get those things in a smoothie and have a delicious drink out of it. So what what is it then on the flip side of the argument from the vegan side that some people say that eating eating meat can be traumatic for your child because, you know, we're teaching kids to love animals and then we have to try and explain to them that they're actually food and we have to go and kill them. Is, is that the most traumatic thing about feeding meat to your kids? Well, certainly we teach children to love animals, to care for and protect them. They instinctively want to care for <clears> and protect animals as well. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we're, we're feeding them meat. And I think that sends a very confusing message when they're old enough to start asking where, those, where, that, where that meat comes from. But unfortunately, that's life, Jimmy. We have to teach them life lessons. Then that's, you know, the world goes round, you know, animals are a food product. Well, they don't have to be. And we're, we're, in a, we're in a very fortunate position now to know that we can live happy, healthy, long lives without eating animal products. And giving children um, transparent information about where it comes from, it lets them have, give them an actual decision whether or not to eat those things. And then, but what's happened so far is that ch- children are typically conditioned to see meat as just food and to forget that it was part of a living, breathing animal. But if we give them that information, they can make a choice for themselves. There was an alarming case that I read about, again, it was a, a case in Lewisham, from a number of years back where a child was uh, was admitted to, to social services or because they thought the child might have rickets because the child was on a vegan diet. Now, the parents were went at lengths to say that, well, we're not vegans because we eat fish. But, you know, why did that raise such a flag? Why did, why did that get to the point where social services were worried about the child because he wasn't getting what he needed? Yeah, well, ve- vegan or otherwise, all parents should take care care to ensure that the children get all the right nutrition. Mm-hmm. And there are roughly 5,000 cases of malnutrition every year in the UK alone. Right. And I must say, I think the media's portrayal of some of these instances are quite misleading. Yeah. <laughs> and um, alarming, I think, aren't they? They, they, you know, they, they, they? They've singled out. But do you, think, do you think Jimmy Vegans get a bad press full stop, regardless of, of, of a kid's you know, starting a child off on a vegan's diet? Do, do vegans get a bad press full stop? I think historically they have. You can't avoid yeah. that. No, absolutely. There, there, there are certain stereotypes that have stuck for a long period of time, but I think public perception is fading, and those stereotypes are slowly but surely being shed. Um, and you know, for, for, for me, and, ha- and how is that happening, Jimmy? How how are this? How is that? You know, how is the vegan message getting across better? Um, well, it's had a particularly positive portrayal in the media, other than these kind of in- rare yeah. instances, yeah. malnutrition cases, um, and I think it's just generally no longer seen as an extreme lifestyle. Because it was normally seen, Jimmy, as a healthy lifestyle. You know, if you were chasing a bit of fitness or, you know, that's the way, that's the road you went down. You went down a vegan diet. It's more broad uh, now, isn't it? Yeah, it's much more broad. And, and people are seeing it's easy and accessible. Just walk into a supermarket and you see all the different 
um, non-dairy alternatives to milk. Mm-hmm. And, and there are so many great foods that used to be available in specific health food shops and now they're in any old supermarket. And, um, and there are actually, as a vegan diet, to, to suit anyone's taste, you know, you can, there are some delicious um, foods that never used to be around, you know, like you can make chocolate cakes and you name it, people with a sweet tooth and people who want alternatives to chicken burgers, you know, there, I, there, I, there are those available for people who want to eat them. The range is, is huge. I mean, I, I have a couple of friends, one friend in particular who's a vegan, and it's, what I find with him, though, is that it's very pushy, Jimmy. It's very, he pushes it up upon you that he's a vegan. It's almost like it's a badge of honour. I he'll almost introduce himself as, "Hi, my name is yada yada, and I'm a vegan." Well, or is it just because they're very passionate about it, Jim? I, I think that's absolutely right. And um, you know, p- people who have gone vegan and care about it, they've they've seen information that they've changed their life quite significantly, and they want to pass on the great benefits, whether it be their own health or what their clear conscience about animals or what they're doing for the environment and they want to pass that message on but sometimes um it riles people slightly the wrong way so i think the best i think the best way to go about it is just to um almost just lead by example and, mm. and not push it too much um, exactly in terms of talking about it but uh, it comes up in conversation all the time because it's uh, it's a lifestyle choice it's not just a diet so without putting you on the spot jimmy so let's say we have two kids Six between six and ten years of age, breakfast, lunch, and dinner as a vegan. What would that consist of? Well, breakfast could be much the same actually. Um, you know, you can have cereal with a plant-based milk, like almond milk or soy milk, most of which are fortified with vitamins like iron, calcium, mm-hmm. and B12. Um, you can have toasted peanut butter and jam, porridge, mm-hmm. smoothies, like we were talking about earlier. And if you wanted a treat, you can have not necessarily for children, but you could have a, a, a kind of full English fry-up type thing, but a vegan version of it. Yes, please. And again, lunches, again, can, can follow the same kind of things that you would norm, non-vegans would have with sandwiches, wraps, soups, salads, that kind of thing. Um, and evening meals can be whatever you want, whether it's um, curry, pizza, fajitas, veggie burgers, stews, casseroles, but vegan versions of them, which... which um, especially if you put an emphasis on getting everything you can um, protein-wise, calcium and iron. Um, and I would also say that most international cuisine um, is largely vegan anyway. Indian, Thai, uh, Mexican, those kind of cuisines are, uh, are ideal for vegans. You're making me hungry now, Jimmy. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm writing down now, I'm trying to choose what I'm going to have for my lunch. Um, why has it become so popular, Jimmy? What's what's the reason for the explosion from it? Is it like most things that it came from the States? And I, I've spent a lot of time in LA and I've noticed that the amount of vegan restaurants that have popped up now, it, it's run of the mill over there. Why why over this side of the pond has it become so popular? Is well, it a fitness of, thing? Is it a health thing? Well, partly. Historically, the main reason why people go vegan in the UK was animal rights, compassion for animals, not wanting to contribute to their pain and suffering. but more, And that's still the case, but more people cottoning on to the health benefits. Mm-hmm. I'll I, I just list a couple of other reasons. I talked about public perception, yeah. how it's easy and accessible now. Um, I think most people associate veganism with health and fitness and well-being when perhaps the opposite was true a few years ago. Um, people are getting more savvy about the environmental impact of animal farming. There's lots of documentaries which have grown in prominence, vegan recipes online. But I think the, the big thing has been social media. I think the one thing the Royals not riles people, Jimmy, but sparks a debate is, is like everything. 
it's when it comes to kids, you know, because again, my my friend, the vegan, I, I accept that and I say, look, that's your choice. It's your lifestyle choice. But it's when you're making the choice on behalf of somebody else. In other words, I'm going to start my kids off on a vegan diet. That's what, that's what sparks the debate, isn't it? Well, vegans choose lifestyle for many reasons. Compassion for animals, environment, I've talked about, desire to improve their health. And why wouldn't they want to share those benefits with the people most important to them? I think um, all parents make decisions on behalf of their children exactly. up until the point in which they're old enough. Um, so I think giving, raising them as vegan gives them a perfect opportunity to understand where their food comes from and then they'll make an informed choice. And like I said before, an, a choice that's based on facts and compassion but not on long-standing practice just because everyone else does. As you say, the key is information, isn't it? I think absolutely it is, yeah. Listen, it's been a pleasure, Jimmy. That was Jimmy Pearson, spokesman for the Vegan Society in the UK. Thanks for joining us, Jimmy. Thank you. Thank you very much. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie As the housing crisis rages on, rent prices are at an all-time high. Affordable property is increasingly difficult to find and new reports from the USI have shown 60% of renters are struggling to get deposits back from their landlords. Now, here to discuss some of these issues facing the students in the rental market, I have Annie Hoey, who is the president of the USI, here with me in the studio. Annie, how are you? Very good, thanks. And we have Dermot Haggerty, president of Griffith College, on the line. Dermot, how are you? Hi, hi, Simon. So, Annie, let me start with you. Um, the housing situation in Ireland, as it stands, is it's a nightmare for everyone at the moment. But are students bearing the brunt of the bad situation? I think it's, there's no secret that the, the housing issue is, is difficult for everyone in mm. all the sectors, the, every sector. But students, I think, have a bit of a, a raw deal, I think, in terms of the fact that maybe they're only looking for leases for nine months. Students are a slightly more transient group as mm. well. Um, you know, they're they're in from September to May and then they're off out again to the J1s and stuff like that. So mm. understandably why people are like, well, look, I'm going to go with a young professional um, who, who might take a lease for 12 months. Mm. Also, the fact is that people who would have been moving out of the housing market maybe 10 years ago when, when times were a bit better and they were able to get mortgages and stuff like that, those are young professionals are still in the rental market yeah. now. So it's quite a clogged up market in terms of, you know, is there enough houses there? We obviously had a, a slowing down of the construction industry over the last few years. So everyone is really feeling the brunt of it. But I think students got a bit of a, a wallop over the last couple of years. So we're trying to be proactive and, and seeking some solutions to that. They they continually seem to be getting walloped. I think that's the problem. And some people might say, ah, yeah, but it's this time of the year again. And we're hearing this argument again. The stu- poor old students are getting it. But it seems to be consistent and it doesn't seem to be changing with them or getting any better for them. Is that Would that be fair? Yeah, well, it, it, it seems to, it's been going on for a couple of years now, and that's why we've we've put together you know the homes for study campaign with with lots of different uh, partners and stuff like that to mm. try and find some short term solutions while the government work on you know the student accommodation strategy and, and the more long term solutions. And the only long term solution is to build student accommodation. Mm. That's that is the long term solution. It simply has to be built. And Jeremy, if I can come to you, what kind of support, Jeremy, do, do universities offer students that are struggling? to find accommodation. What help is there for them? Well, I think it's, 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 many, it's sort of difficult uh, in, in the sense that the market really is driving this and the accommodation the universities would be getting for the students apart from their own student accommodation would, you know, would have to be uh, accessed in the marketplace. Um, I, I, I agree with Annie. I think her, she's analysed it uh, you know, uh, very accurately there. Um, the, the, but this is a problem that... This is, this is not a problem that has been 
groups in the last couple no. of years. It's, it's actually been going now for four or five years. And to the extent that we, involved in the Higher Education College Association, actually made a recommendation to government. The high, there was a high-level committee established with a view to uh, planning the influx of foreign students into Ireland. We, we recommended to them that they should in, reintroduce uh, uh, the incentives for student accommodation. They chose not to do so at the time basically because, in fact, uh, for policy reasons, uh, the Irish government fortunately has set its face against uh, against uh, building incentives, believing that that's but, what but it how, how in the first place. But how did the government think that that's helping the situation by making a decision like that? Because it's not making it very attractive for students from abroad, is it? I mean, they're laying down probably about 20,000 to do a master's before they before they do anything. I mean, you know, when you say you made that recommendation, Dermot, and they turned it down, did, did they give you a reason why? I believe uh, they didn't. I believe the reason is because they, they, uh, they I think the, the tax incentives that had been offered the building industry were very much uh, looked at askance by. Um, I think the at the time, bear in mind, we were still uh, under the control of the troika, and uh, the troika's view towards tax incentives was very negative. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, the result is we in, we had tax incentives when we didn't need them. And we wouldn't introduce them when we did. Uh, and the problem is that people are not looking ahead. They're not actually, you know, they're not forecasting uh, the shortages. And that's that, and, and we really have a, ser- a serious competition shortage. Annie, I mean, as president of the USI, I would imagine that a good chunk of your time is taken up, particularly this time of the year, with, with people coming to you and saying, I'm in trouble here. I, I can't find anywhere, and anywhere I can find... The prices are just exorbitant. How, how, how do you help them, Annie? Where, where do you point them? What help is there for them in terms of of the USI? Well, we we would work very very closely with local students' unions. So all of a nearly every student union in the country has the the good old fashioned Facebook group set up. God bless them. Uh, they, they are they have saved many of the students' bottom in terms of getting them into accommodation. <laughs> you know, people putting up, look, we found a great house. You know, it's a four bed house. Is there anyone in the area who wants to move in with us? Those are very useful things. And obviously, then we've set up the Homes for Study campaign, and particularly focusing on digs. I think digs went a little bit out of vogue over the last couple of years. People are like, ah, mm. oh, no, we won't go there. We're going to houses or apartments or complexes and we're just trying to we've been working quite hard on getting people around to the idea actually digs are a very suitable and viable option for accommodation we're particularly targeting it at first years people mm-hmm. whose CAO results will be coming out in a couple of weeks and maybe postgrads as well who just want somewhere a little bit quieter just to go home after a fairly heavy slog doing the postgraduate work and you know very often digs can be nearer the campus accommodation than sometimes the recommended so they accommodation so suit you better yeah, it's only down the road from it. Um, you may you, you have your own living arrangement. Some people will end up in a digs where you get breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and the whole shebang and a family. And you're you're I've been you're, back at Mammy's. Yeah, you're blessed <laughs> from above. And then there's other places where you you pass like ships in the night. But you, you work out your own arrangement what with a, the person. What about Annie? In terms of and Jeremy, I'll, I'll give you, I'll put the same question to you after we get a response from Annie. In terms of uh, on campus accommodation, give us some idea as in terms of the difference of price. Or, or how how easy is it to get on campus accommodation? I mean, there's so little of it. Is it easy to get it? What are um, the price difference between that and even finding digs? Maybe I think uh, on campus on campus accommodation has become a bit of a golden chalice now <laughs> in terms of it's quite often held for international students or mm-hmm. for first years, mm-hmm. um, and then you kind of peter your way in. Then who are mm-hmm. the lucky few? I mean, there are we have heard reports of really astonishing waiting lists. 
for um, on-campus accommodation where students all are finding themselves all around the country down in the, in the hundreds to, and you know 900th on a waiting list which is an alarming uh, place to be to be sitting so yeah, I mean we do we do actually hear that don't we Annie and maybe I'll put this to you Jeremy it's not it's not a Dublin centric problem this this is this is countrywide isn't it well yeah it's more accentuated in Dublin I think because because of the the, the cost of accommodation, the alternative, you know, the cost in the marketplace is that much higher in Dublin. But, uh, you know, the shortage of student accommodation on campus is countrywide, yeah. But, and are, uh, are you finding, Dermot, that in terms of, you know, you're prepping now for another year, um, are you finding that there are more, you, you're, you're being approached more by students to say, look, we need help, can you help us? Is it becoming more and more of a problem visibly for you every year? Um, we, we, in fact, Probably we, we find that for our own students, uh, we, we've got uh, sufficient accommodation and we actually take in students from other colleges. Uh, but that's really just a, a function of our, our, our planning many years ago. Um, I think that uh, as regards, you know, I think Annie's right. I think in the long term, it's a long term solution. You just have, we have, there really has to be more accommodation coming on stream. That will come. It'll come, but. But, it's, but a short term concern, years. Dermot, for, for you and for Annie, for all of us as a society, is that this could actually put people off going to college. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I mean, that, that's an alarming problem for society as a, as a, in, in general. Absolutely, I agree. And uh, I mean, I think that, I mean, the idea, I think digs are a good idea. One thing we introduced a few years ago was a proposal whereby students could uh, get um, free tuition in the college if they actually put up a foreign student. Mm. And the idea was that, that the foreign student, you know, becomes part of the household. The uh, the actual the uh, Irish student hopefully will actually develop a relationship with that student and you start thinking in terms of a wider, a much wider global perspective. You see, but, you see, there uh, are there are solutions, Dermot, and you're having to come up with these yourselves. You know what I mean? You, you, what's striking me is that there seems to be no help. I mean, any another statistic that that frightened me looking here is about this thing about not getting deposits back. Sixty percent of students yeah, can't get deposits back. What, explain that to me. Well, sixty percent of respondents were having difficulty with deposits. Now, I right. think if there were sixty percent of people not getting deposits yeah. back, we'd be battering down doors <laughs> out in the streets. You'd be on the streets. Uh, you'd hear all about it. it. It's difficulty. So difficulty can range all the way from can't get the deposit back to there's being a delay in the deposit coming back mm. or you know or there's a mysterious cleaning charge appears at the end of it yeah. but this 6% I mean this is from people who very often are not registered with the RTB and this is a group of unscrupulous landlords who are actively targeting students because they're an easier group students are a transient group who tend to move a little bit quicker and they, they might leave you know in, in May and need to get going on J1s and they don't have mm. time to chase up or the money to go chase up to get deposits back and these unscrupulous landlords know this so they're a group of landlords who I don't know if they're in cahoots but they're they're a group that are, are really giving very decent landlords a very bad name Joe I've, I've always had great experiences with landlords really positive landlords mm. but then I hear about these horror stories about people who can't get their deposits back and Joe I happen to have been very lucky that my landlords were all registered with the RTB and were decent people who wanted to just conduct business in a timely manner but it, it's not always the same So it, it is part of the solution that, that you, you know is to try and encourage more people to, to register with the RTB or to use people who are registered through the RTB tell me about the RTB and what you'd like to see happen 
Well, it's an obligation. You're supposed to be registered with the RTB. Mm. But of course, what happens, what we're finding, particularly with students who are perhaps what one consider a slightly more vulnerable group, maybe panicking, uh, you know, frantically looking for accommodation. Uh, they don't really perhaps think, look, well, could I have your reference number there for the RTB? Would you mind yeah. giving me that? And do you know what I mean? And this is how these things happen. But is, it, people... is it that relationship? Is it, is it the... The tenant landlord relationship. I mean, like, are you afraid to rock rock the boat in case they say another hundred quid a month? Well, yeah, but that's they the up th- the rent. You know, students are going with cash in hand uh, to house viewings to hand over the cash and then turn. You know, and we obviously hear all of these terrible horror stories, and they're horror stories that are in the minority. But of course, uh, gather, gather media attention. But they, they frighten people, and they yeah. frighten parents at home. You know, are my children, are they going to be okay when they go to college? And what we're saying is, you know, just be very cautious. You know, don't hand over money until you've, you've viewed the property. Mm-hmm. Uh, sign a lease or sign a contract. Take photos beforehand and, and, you know, transfer money electronically so that there's at least a paper trail behind you. Get receipts. Make sure if there's any any damages or anything like that, drop an email to the landlord, send a text message, whatever it is. Keep a paper trail of all the things that are happening throughout the year. So when it comes to the end of the year, when you're looking for your deposit back, you can be like, look, well, I told you that the kettle broke and I told you the window fell out mm-hmm. and you, know, you never came in and did anything about it. Mm-hmm. So you have a record of what's going on. And it's, it's for the benefit of both the landlords and the tenants we want to see positive relationships between tenants and landlords the last thing you want first of all the landlord is a headache with the student uh, you know causing you know there being a problem but the student doesn't want to be a pain yeah, the students very often just want to go get on with it yeah. and not be worrying about things. We have far more things to be worrying about as yeah. students. We have fees coming out of our ears. We have costs spiralling rents. We have food. Everything is already exploding around us. We don't need to be worrying about whether we're going to get the deposit back at the end. It's not on top of and it. I mean, this, I mean, Dermot, it puts a huge strain on the people who we haven't mentioned yet, mammy and daddy. You know what I mean? If, if parents are yeah. behind it and trying to help you fund it, and you know, well, parents well, must I mean, be... I typically... Typically, when you think of a, a deposit as a month's rent, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a fair bit of money. Um, the only thing I would say is that, uh, and this is where mummy and daddy might take it, in some cases, I think that the students may actually not, uh, you know, I suppose because they're, they're, they're committed during the summer, that, and they may not, uh, they may, may not be pursuing the option with the PRTB. I, I do think that they are, that they, they are very supportive. And uh, you know, if you if you raise the issue with PRTB about your uh, your not receiving your deposit, you know it won't just lie there. Um, and uh, so I think I think what's happening maybe is that you know there maybe people are not aware of uh, that, that 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 it is an option. You know, we are talking uh, to uh, we are talking to Dermot Hegarty, who's president of Griffith College, and Annie Howey, president of the USI. Annie. We're getting reaction, obviously, coming in here on, on the text line. Someone says, can you ask any if students always leave their properties as they found them? I.e., are the deposits used for repairs and replacements uh, or or what? Well, I mean, that's, a, that's a hard question. Well, I mean, I, I don't track things. but You don't know. But we don't ever, there's never any problem with deposits if for a necessary reason being withheld. You know, there there has to be a reasonable amount of wear and tear allowed. I mean, obviously, if someone is breaking down the inner wall, for goodness sake, go after them for more mm-hmm. than just the deposit. Like that nonsense of, oh, well, students are going to destroy the place. We better keep the deposit. Like these are, most students do not go around the place destroying the place. And but I've heard people losing the... their deposits because, you know, like things like kettles broke. Yeah. Like this is nonsense since keeping deposits for that. But also, um, you know, we have to be careful as well that not, we have to see the other side of it, and, you know, that all not all landlords are bad. Like, you've never had a bad experience well, with it. Yeah, absolutely know. not. Can I, can I Go ahead, Simon. Simon. I think, I, I think that, that really the advantage, I suppose, of being in a student accommodation that is managed is that you, it's all, there's a system. 
Okay, um, I um, I think that I mean I've I've just in, in in the case of our student accommodation signing for about four hundred and twenty checks for refunds of deposits. Uh, and they, they, they weren't all the full deposits. Our deposit is actually 300 euros. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say maybe 10% of, of, of maybe 10% of the checks were 300 euros. The rest of them varied right down maybe to five euros because mm-hmm. be, because of, 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 of that. But I, I would say that in fairness, in, in a managed system, the students respect it, uh, and, and you don't tend to have a huge amount, a huge deduction for. Damage we, in, we, do, we don't experience that. In or, terms of the accommodation it, on, on the campus at Griffith College, Dermot, give us an idea of what it, what it consists of. How many students can you accommodate on campus? We have 664 beds. Okay, and, and what's the process in, 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 in terms of getting a student on campus accommodation with you? Well, you know, apply and apply now. Um, yeah. I, I would think that. Uh, uh, I mean, it just it, given the market we're in, uh, the student accommodation sold very, very early. Um, we had uh, previous previous year we had people actually paying rent uh, to to just to, to get onto a waiting list. You know, yeah, that's, um, that, that's frightening. Yeah. <laughs> Annie, in terms of um, we, we, Annie, we don't we don't see the, the culture here in terms of student loans. You know, the, as we do in the US, they're not as big. You know, are. Is that creeping in, or are, are kids putting themselves in more and more debt now just to get a couple of months' rent up? Yeah, well, the, the DIT cost of life survey shows that it costs about €11,000 to live away from home to go to college for a year, and that was from two years ago. Mm. So, I mean, that's, that's, I mean, even if you look at the difference between that and what you get in a grant, which is about €3,000, mm. like, you need to get the money from somewhere, and families need to put up that money, and there's not like there's. I think 70% of students now work part-time jobs to put themselves through college. I mean, the people are scrambling all around the place to get the money together. Or else we hear these these very sad stories of people who simply can't afford to live in the accommodation near where where they're studying. So they're mm-hmm. travelling. We, we'd want students travelling from Galway over to Dublin um, and staying in a hostel three nights a week last year um, because yeah. that's just what they had to do. And they were so determined to get themselves an education so as to better themselves, to better their family in the future. Like people are really putting themselves out there so as to be able to access education. And, and the accommodation is one just one of the hoops that they really have to, firing, blazing hoops that they have to jump through. The reaction continues here. One texter says that I lived in Belgium for many years. For most renters, minimum lease period is three years. Three months deposit up front held in joint landlord-tenant account. Properties inspected by an independent evaluator before and after residency who can release deposit. It seemed crazy to me at first, but it works much better than the system here. In terms of the solution, and I'll put this to both of you, maybe I'll start with you, Dermot. What is the solution? I mean, you already spoke earlier on about, you know, you put a plan to the government <laughs> and they said, no, what's the next step for you? Well, there's a solution in terms of the shortage of accommodation or the, or the question of deposits? I mean, deposits... Well, the shortage of accommodation. Uh, in terms of shortage of accommodation, it really is just more has got to come on stream. Mm-hmm. Planning has got to become quicker and uh, incentives need to be introduced, uh, in, in my view. Uh, they're long overdue and... Uh, but is, is there a push is, on it, Dermot? That's what I'm saying. There doesn't seem to be an awful lot of push towards it. I mean, I know it's coming from you guys and coming from Annie, but... Are the public getting behind us? Is there is there a, you know, are, are we fighting for us? No, no, I don't think so. Uh, and uh, I mean, we're we're coming out of a period when, in fact, uh, you know, people were putting down our, 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 our 
we're putting our recession down to the fact that uh, we had we built too much uh, mm. property in the wrong places mm. in earlier years. But now, because of the lack of incentives three years ago, we have a short student accommodation. Uh, Annie, same question. Where do we start? What's the solution? I suppose, well, obviously, we've put forward the short-term solution, which is getting students into digs accommodation, so homes.usi.ie, getting students into those and getting landlords into the idea that they can let out a room if they have them. And then the medium to long-term solution is exactly what Dermot said. It is about building. I think the government, the government have committed... Um, to uh, formulating a student housing strategy specifically around student accommodation we'll certainly be pushing very hard from our end to make sure that the student has a strong voice in that that the student state remains the centre of that because they're obviously the key stakeholders they're the ones who are going to be living there so we'd certainly be pushing for that strategy to be formulated as soon as possible in the next couple of months and we'll be working closely with them but ultimately it is it's about building accommodation and getting getting that built as quickly as possible and in terms of deposits we've partnered with Deposify it's a it's a deposit management group uh, there's similar schemes Deposify Deposify very good yeah it's a it's a deposit management scheme similar to what's in the UK and in the USA where the, the deposit is held in a in a holding account it's mm-hmm. underwritten by Bank of Ireland and both uh, the tenant and the landlord have access to it they can see it there it is and <coughs> at the end of the tenancy landlord does a recce everything's A-OK deposit goes back to the student everything's not whatever needs to go back to the landlord like every good idea it sounds perfectly logical and simple doesn't it very simple and if there's a dispute there's an online dispute uh, <coughs> grouping that they can try yeah. and negotiate and mediate that way with um, legal professionals and lawyers who are specialised in the accommodation area and then if that can't be resolved that way you can take it offline and go to a further dispute resolution um, and it can be it's, the whole aim is to try and expedite it to have it be done as quickly as possible um, so that people aren't dilly-dallying around waiting for deposits to either go to the landlord or the tenant whoever ought to have it. And, and in terms of the long-term solution Annie what's the plan there? Because that's a short-term you know but what's the long-term solution? Is it literally just more rooms? Yep, the only thing, the only way we're going to solve this we is need to more build, space. build more and, and to be, you know, we're we're watching closely to see who's <coughs> building what, where and, and I think um, campuses and institutions are acutely aware of the need to build and I can certainly say from the meetings I've been having are, are scrambling around and are trying to do their best to get planning permission through, to get plans together and get the capital together to actually build student accommodation because I don't think anyone's under any illusion that this is something that's going to go away. No, it's not unfortunately. Thank you, Annie Hoey, President of of the USI for coming in and Dermot Hegarty, President of Griffith College for speaking with me today. Thank you very much. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Now, moving on to business, Michael O'Regan, good afternoon, sir. How are you? Good afternoon, Simon. Now, Sinn Féin looks set to end their industrial wage policy for TDs. This, of course, is after a review that's ongoing or hasn't started. Has it started yet, Michael? The well, it's, it's, it's in the process. It's, it's underway. They're yeah. in the process. Well, after many years of the party members complaining about it, they're finally deciding to, to review this. Does this surprise you? It doesn't, Simon, actually, no, because uh, Sinn Féin is moving more and more into mainstream politics here in the Republic since, mm. uh, you know, they decided to take seats in the Dáil. They've changed quite dramatically. They're now, uh, uh, I mean, they're now uh, quite a strong party, you know. They have uh, 23 TDs, seven mm. senators, they're four MEPs, they have about 150 councillors. So th- th- this is a very strong political party. Th- there have been complaints from... Uh, t- inevitably, obviously, TDs and indeed people who work for them uh, in recent years about the uh, taking the industri- average industrial wage. The 
the situation at the moment is that a TD is paid €87,258. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the average industrial wage of €35,000 was the take-home pay if you were a Sinn Féin TD. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them have been complaining they can't live on that. Now, I have to say, Simon, that claim that they were taking home the €35,000 uh, uh, industrial wage pay packet was looked on with a certain scepticism by other political but parties. But this was something that this yes, is the drum they banged precisely, all the way Precisely, but Sinn Féin insists this is what's happening. Yeah. And uh, any decision to reverse that and give them full, full pay, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, it'll be taken eventually by the Art Corla. I said the Art Corla will take a decision to pay them the full salary. Part of their problem is, of course, is hiring people. Now, uh, by the way, the state never benefited from this. Uh, the, the, the money went to uh, employing people, uh, you know, in constituency offices are indeed and that's in the a fair point to make. You yeah, know. So the state didn't benefit. Yeah. It, it went to the party effectively. Uh, but uh, I suspect that the Ord Corla, when it gets this finalised report, uh, will decide that they'll be paid the full salary. W- were, were they struggling to attract people to the party, Michael? Is that what it was? Because people were going to say, well, I'm not working for that wage. Uh, Given the amount of work I'm going to have to do. Yeah, they, 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 weren't, uh, they were doing very well in terms of membership. Yeah. A lot of very young people, you know, young people joining the party. Mm-hmm. A lot of young people elected in the local elections, the, co- the council elections, the last uh, local elections. But of course, if you want to start implying uh, backroom people, which you need, any political, particularly a, p- a party the size of Sinn Féin, looking down the road towards government, modernising, then you need to pay them the going rate, as it were. And uh, one Sinn were they Féin, all, were they all on thirty five grand as well? Well, again, <laughs> again, Simon, the party insists they were. Can't Speak to Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael, they might be a lot more cynical than you or I would ever yeah, be. Come with not cynical, Michael <laughs> at all. Um, is it hypocritical of them now to change this or, or what, what are the reasons they might I, change I this? don't think so at all, actually. And uh, now they will be looking, of course, at the the left-wing parties who uh, they're in competition for votes with uh, and they will be criticised perhaps. I don't think so. I mean, I think that, look, if this is the going rate for a TD, pay him or her the going rate. If they want to spend some of their money in offices uh, around the country and constituency offices and employing people, let them do that. But certainly in a modern democracy, People should be paid whatever the going rate is and, you know, move I mean, on I, from there. I, I, I mean, having read the story, I mean, I, I, when you read the headline, Sinn Féin, you turn on domestic wage, it, it paints a different picture of actually what the story is, doesn't it really? I mean, because as you say, it was of no detriment to the state uh, uh, what abs- they paid them. Yeah, absolutely. It didn't make a blind bit of it, difference. It, the taxpayer doesn't gain a cent. The, right. the party, uh, the, the, the money the TD wasn't paid, uh, goes to the party, not back to the state. But take us back to why why, why was this, uh, why was the industrial wage policy there in the first place? Was it just, to, to, you know, we're in touch with the working man, yes. if you're going to work for it, we're going to work for it. That's it. That's precisely it. We're in touch with the ro- working person. Uh, uh, Sinn Féin would have quite a strong base in working class, uh, you know, housing, class base, housing estates. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Um, uh, uh, and if you look back historically, Simon, go back to the Workers' Party, we'll say, mm-hmm. Uh, they had a similar base. Now, they, some the Workers' Party still exists, but some of the Workers' Party people later joined Democratic Left. I'm thinking, for, for instance, of Pat Rabbit and mm-hmm. Eamon Gilmore, later joined the Labour Party, becoming uh, leaders of the party and, of course, serving in government. Mm-hmm. But this was to attract uh, uh, a working class vote. Um, I'm not, I don't, I could be very wrong about this. I'm not too sure how much it impresses people. You know, if there's a rate for the job, you perhaps accept the rate. That's the rate. Uh, and by the way, the, and as I said, the state isn't benefiting, the party is. I'm not too sure that it's a huge vote getter. I may be wrong on that. Someone's just texted in here. Is the 35 grand before or after tax? Uh, the 35 grand would be before tax. Yeah. Before tax. Before, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Does it affect, 
Jerry Adams presidency in in terms of is this just another glimpse into a modern Sinn Féin future that ultimately will be without Jerry Adams? Oh yeah, I, I think we're looking at a party that where Jerry Adams will step down as leader. I, I think he'll remain in a uh, in a sort of presidential role. Now he's all because of the structure of the party. They don't have a leader in the doll as such. They have a president. Mm. Now that's that's a throwback to other times. I suspect that what what will happen is that I w- I would say very likely Mary Lou Macdonald will take over the leadership of the party mm-hmm. with Jerry Adams remaining president, a kind of father figure, and of course a link with the party's uh, you know past. Whereas Mary Lou Macdonald, uh, South Dublin, uh, you know, of a new generation, flirted one time, by the way, Simon would feel in the fall. Uh, But that that might have broadened her education uh, and that she will take over the leadership in the Dáil and that the party will move more centre ground while also, of course, having to retain its core working class base. Now, in in terms of the structure of this, in terms of this, the looking at reviewing it, where is it at at the moment? Have they started the review? Are they, how long will the review take and when will we hear what they're going to do at the end of it? I think we will hear, uh, I, I, I would say we'll hear in the autumn. Uh, you know, I would say this will go before the, the art corolla in the autumn. And I suspect, I don't know this, I've been talking to some people in Sinn Féin, the, mm-hmm. the, they think the art corolla will, uh, you know, have a situation where you're paid in full as a TD. I suspect that it'll be done by the autumn. So what are they going to do then in terms of like the, that difference of 40, 50 grand you know that they were that they were using to fund their network of of workers. Where is that money going to come from then? That's a very good question. But uh, uh, if you look at election campaigns, uh, one of the things um, Sinn Fein is not short of. Certainly, uh, anecdotally, if you look at the election camp, they're not they're not short of funding. No. You know, they have constituency offices around the country. They have a very very. Uh, good organisation. Uh, it's a very healthy organisation yes, in terms of a political party, uh, isn't it? Pr- precisely. And a lot of young people in there, a lot of very... Yeah. Sk- all on message, by the way, so far. But, mm-hmm. you know, movements like that, they tend to get a kind of... Uh, they can't kind of get... I won't say a blind loyalty, but a strong loyalty. That too in time will change. They'll become like the others, Simon Delph. <laughs> You'll have them here in the studio. <laughs> they might even be fighting among themselves. Oh, God forbid. Um, in terms of the thirty-five grand, uh, do they claim expenses? By the way, is that in oh yeah? They, well, they would claim uh, they would be entitled to expenses. Yes, they would cl- claim. But I mean, these would be expenses available to every TD, not uh, travelling expenses and allowances like that. According to the Irish Times, a Sinn Fein source said that that this policy shift is well, it's a move towards. It's necessary to move towards a more modern yes, party. Yeah. But they seem to have their finger on the pulse as it is. They seem to be. You know, in terms of the other political parties, they seem to be the modern party. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, uh, but I, I, and I think the point Sarah Barden was making there in the Irish Times was that um, while they are an effective organisation, they do have to modernise more. They, they have to move more centre ground for a start. Uh, you know, they are ready, not quite ready yet, but they will eventually have to participate in government, in a coalition government, mm. because to become relevant, you can't become a party of opposition opposing everything forever. You mm. lose credibility with the people. There's also, there's also maybe, the opinion polls might suggest, that there's some, uh, that they just might have peaked in their present mould, as it were. And that they, yes, and they might have to modernise more, move more centre ground, new leader, um, perhaps modify their economic policies a bit uh, to gain that centre ground vo- vote, which you do need to gain. The challenge for them, of course, they're looking at the Paul Murphys and others mm-hmm. uh, who are, you know, they're in competition for the same vote. They have to bring that traditional vote with them as well. And that's, that's quite a challenge. 
are they going to have to streamline though? That's what I'm thinking. Are they going to have to streamline if they if they're missing that money? I'm just, I'm trying to do the maths in my own mm. head. You know, with the amount of TDs that they have and that money that they had taken away from their salary that they're paid to fund everything else. It, it seems like an awful lot of money to have to find all of it. It does, but, you know, there there can be barbecues, race nights, <laughs> raffles for weekends away in fancy hotels, maybe. Uh, you know, <laughs> news talk does it. Sinn Féin might do it, Simon. They, they, there are, you know, there are, there are various ways of raising funds, and they do have, they do have particularly in some constituencies, quite uh, um, a strong organisation where you can organise, you know, the race night or the, you know, the the social event or the barbecue or something. Mm. Uh, th- certainly, uh, having covered elections in recent years, I would think funding is not a problem for them. They remind me, actually, <laughs> they won't take this as a compliment, <laughs> they remind me of Fianna Fáil in the good old days oh, who had plenty of funding oh, for yeah. elections, but time moves on. <laughs> Michael O'Regan, parliamentary correspondent for the Irish Times. It's been a pleasure and an education, Michael. Thank you for Thank that. You, Simon, I'm, it's a pity we couldn't go on that weekend that you mentioned. Don't you earlier. worry. You go outside now and text in 53106 and you and me will be off to Castle Barter you know, by <laughs> the weekend. That, yeah. <laughs> the Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie A review published in this month's issue of the Drug and Therapeutics Bulletin found that despite strong marketing claims, evidence seems to point to the fact that some multivitamins and mineral supplements may be unnecessary and expensive. So are expectant mothers wasting their time with multivitamins? Well, to discuss this, I'm joined by Danielle Barron, freelance health and medical journalist. Danielle, welcome to the programme. Good afternoon. So, Danielle, what is your stance on the use or taking multivitamins during pregnancy? Well, I'm just a journalist, so don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> but um, I, I, I wasn't surprised at this study. I mean, maybe that's a good place to start. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly in 10 years of writing about health and medical issues, vitamins um, have been frequently exposed as being oversold and overblown and the claims on them. Um, I suppose what this study really looked at is a time when a woman is vulnerable, when they're really trying to be the healthiest they've maybe ever been and they're really trying to do the best for their unborn infant. Mm-hmm. And there are these marketing claims that um, would would serve to convince the woman that they should be taking these vitamins and obviously paying um, often a high price for them, particularly the branded ones. And um, this study went and looked at the claims behind those, you know, marketing um, statements on, mm-hmm. on the packaging and in the advertisements. And what they found was that um, these are... certainly certainly not everything they claim to be, but definitely could be um, an unnecessary expense for women. Like I said, they're at a a vulnerable point. Um, They're they're, uh, trying to be very healthy. Um, But these these products seem to claim that that they can, you know, give a woman the best nutrition when really the researchers found that this comes from the woman's diet. And the claims that the manufacturers of the vitamins and mineral supplements um, are making, these are based on uh, research that's been done in lower income countries where the diet may not be as good as, as the typical Western diet with access to a wide range of foodstuffs. Um, so you so what, what sort of things were they claiming, you know, that this, this, this X, Y and Z vitamin will help this? What were the, what were the claims being made? Well, they, I, they didn't name them specifically because I suppose the thing is that there's a huge number of um, different types, um, different brands, different formulations of the 
of the vitamins. But I mean, the, the, the claims in question were things like, um, you know, essential, necessary. It's the wording behind it. It's, it's very psychological. And mm-hmm. um, the fact that they contain 20 plus vitamins and minerals. Um, people think that it's it's a one stop shop. You know, that's all they need to do is pop the, the vitamin or mineral supplement and then they can eat, you know, chips and um, crisps all day, um, <laughs> you know, no, like non-nutritious foods. That's not the way it is. Really what they found was that most diets, like most people's diets, is actually pretty sufficient in terms of providing us with the, the necessary amounts of vitamins and minerals that, that anyone would need. Um, certainly, particularly in pregnancy, there's no established research no. on any of these, you know, vitamins or minerals having a particular role in pregnancy. I mean, obviously, it's critical that if, if a pregnant woman, for example, with slightly anemic, maybe a bit low in iron, that they might need an iron supplement. But that's something to be decided upon by perhaps the doctor. You know, Well, that's what I was going to say, Danielle. You know, my, my wife haven't had four babies. I, 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 the only thing I can remember her taking was the folic acid. Yeah. Now, I mean, everyone should take folic acid. Absolutely. I'm a 33-year-old woman. I don't have any plans to have babies yet, but the thing is 50% of pregnancies are unplanned. So every woman of childbearing age should take folic acid. I just bought a supply in Tesco and it was 50 cent for 90 tablets. That's three months. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's so, a disgraceful price. Yeah, 50 percent, 50 cent. Yeah. I, but the I, reason I that, that you take that and the reason that we're happy taking that is because the medical research has been proven and it, it, this will do yeah. what it says on the packet. Yeah, that's what this research found. But the, the, the only um, mineral that was found to have a, a, a scientific um, evidence backing it up was the folic acid. We know that Ireland has a particularly high incidence of neural tube defects such as um, spina bifida. And that's why women should take folic acid for three months before they plan on conceiving and up to, um, or maybe four months, sorry, and then up to three months um, pregnant of pregnancy. Um, but I take it, it's really good for hair, if anyone's listening. <laughs> it's really good for um, making your hair quite thick and shiny. I have to say, mine's from adolescence to to take folic acid. A lot like cheaper said, than a bottle of conditioner too, isn't it? <laughs> um, well, it's it's practically free. It should it should be free, and there is a lot of talk about fortifying foods with folic acid that that should be done. But really, this what this research found was that some of the vitamin supplements were costing upwards of fifteen pounds a month. It was a UK study, so you can imagine fifty cents for three months of folic acid versus fifteen pounds <laughs> a month. When really you should probably, and what we all should do. Pregnant women included should be eating more veg, more natural foods, um, you know, a wide range of vegetables, a colourful plate. We know what we, we all know what we have to do. They mm. can sell all the supplements in the world, all the diets in the world. We really all know what we should do. But Danielle, um, if, if you're, if you're, you know, if you're pregnant or thinking about starting a family, is there somewhere, you know, would you recommend a point for us to go to, to look up and thinking of, I heard about this vitamin, let me have a look. Where do, where do we start? The thing is, um, the, it, it, people uh, would be swayed by the claims on these products. And that's not to say that some people might need, you know, they might have a magnesium deficiency, they might have an iron deficiency, but that's only something that really a doctor could diagnose. So um, what I would say is that, you know, the HSE has great information on their website. There's there's plenty of, um, I know that there's, there's a wide range of uh, websites with, with forums for other expectant mothers. But I mean, this is where my job comes in as a health journalist to look at the research and then communicate it. And, and, and good quality journalism will, will look at studies like this and say, well, look, this is what they found. Whereas um, marketing claims are something that have a completely different um, job to do. And, and I suppose what I would say is that women should 
speak to their doctor um, should look online at, at reputable websites such as those from the HSE and those recommended by the HSE. <clears throat> but, you know, stay away from, from the claims because who really knows better than your exactly, doctor? Exactly. Have a conversation with the GP. Danielle Barron, freelance health and medical journalist. Thank you for joining us this afternoon. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie We're into my realm now. We're going to talk about a film. Uh, Splash. Remember Splash, the iconic 80s film starring Tom Hanks and Daryl Hannah? About a mermaid gaining legs for a short period of time and falling in love. How do you pitch that movie and get it financed? Well, anyway, we'll discuss that. Uh, It's being remade with Channing Tatum in the role of the mermaid coming ashore. Yes, that's right. Do not adjust your set. Channing Tatum will be playing the merman. Uh, This has sparked debate, of course, whether this is empowering for women or to their detriment that the mermaid is now a merman. And in light of this, there have been a string of movies recently which have made similar changes to gender with varying degrees of success. Most notable of these was, of course, the recent Ghostbusters remake starring Kirsten Wiig, Melissa McCarthy, Leslie Jones and Kate McKinnon. But alongside this, which I discovered today, and I don't know how I feel about this, a new Ocean's Eleven series which will star Sandra Bullock and an all-female cast. What the what? And Tilda Swinton cast as what was an old Tibetan man in the new Doctor Strange film Mm. by Marvel. Right, now joining us to discuss this trend, which has been picking up speed, is Stephen Benedict, film lecturer in Dublin Business School. Good afternoon, welcome to the programme. Hi Simon, good to see you again. It's been a while, hasn't it? Too long. We were reminiscing during the ad break. We were indeed. Ten years. Oh God, it sounds like gross point blank. Ten years, man, ten years. It's younger looking, we're getting. Oh, it's great, isn't it? Well, as we said, it's the life of temperance sobriety that we've chosen, (laughs) Stephen. Um... Is this much ado about nothing? This yeah, I think so. I or, or think is it just the, the, <clears throat> they're just putting a bow around this product again, selling it again. Well, I think it's better than a strict <clears throat> a straight remake. I mean, we've seen mm. straight remakes far too often, and they never really measure up. To, very, very rarely do they measure up to the original. And I think what's happening here is that they're taking a very popular movie from the from the eighties, as you said. Mm. I think uh, Lowell Gans and Babalu Mandel brilliant names for writers you couldn't make Lowell Gantz and Babalu Mandel wow (laughs) even the just their names would get you the pitch they sound like a Eurovision actor (laughs) (laughs) they pitched it to uh, Brian Grazer who is the producer Mm. partner of Ron Howard and uh, he went yes absolutely just two or three lines they said really a mermaid in Manhattan and he said I see it great movie And, uh, you know, they went on to write, I think, Parenthood for Ron Howard again. Brilliant Really, film. really, really good writers, you know. Um, so where did the idea of the remake come? Well, I think they're just looking around and they're saying, mm. you know, they obviously want to, I want, don't like the word rehash, but reimagine uh, f- films that were successful in the 70s and 80s. And you said Ocean's Eleven there. You know, that was, I mean, if we honestly look at the one from 61, Lewis Milestone directing mm. Frank Sinatra, it wasn't that good. <laughs> Soderbergh's version with George Clooney was great fun. And, you know, why why shouldn't they change the, the gender for all the characters? I mean, there's nothing specific about the characters that has to be male. And I think if we look at other movies where they have changed the gender, it's really, really surprising. It's very, very liberating when you reimagine a character and you say, oh, well, that, why can't that be a woman? And the most famous one, I think, is actually the movie that actually started it off was Alien. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, Dan O'Bannon and Ron Schussel had written that mo- written that script specifically, not declaring the gender of any of the characters. They really? said it's unisex, and then late on in pre-production, uh, Ridley Scott said, "Why don't we actually declare that this this Ripley is a woman?" 
And I think that's historically, that's probably one of the most influential casting decisions ever in Hollywood. I mean, if you go back to the 50s, really, really interesting movie called The Defiant Ones, Tony Curtis and Sidney Poitier, two convicts on the run. The decision to put Sidney Poitier in that movie broke open and reimagined a whole different swathe mm-hmm. for, for Hollywood casting. Can you imagine? They would, probably would never have made the movie In the Heat of the Night had The Defined Ones not been it made. It not happened. Yeah. But this is, this is hardly breaking new ground in terms of the, these aren't, this isn't a seismic moment, the fact that Channing Tatum is going to be playing the Merman. Getting back to why, why remake in the first place? Well, you know, I mean, is it just laziness? I mean, there were so many good writers with original ideas, new scripts, new characters, why why we remaking Splash? Can I be really, really cheap and ask you you worked in the remake? Correct. And it worked. It did. Yeah. Yes, it so, did. So, so yes. why not? You know, I mean the thing is Well, I think, well there were specific reasons for that because the remake that I did, mm. which was a movie called Delivery Man with Vince Vaughn. That's a lovely plug. <laughs> you're very welcome. <laughs> was originally called Starbuck, I think. And it was a French Canadian movie. Yeah. And they remade that because the original was in French. Yeah. So they decided to make it it was critically so well received yeah. they thought this could work in Hollywood mm. so they remade it but they you know there was a reason to remake that because there was a large it reached audience, a wider audience a rich wider audience but the thing is who is watching Splash today other than people who grew up in the 80s there's a whole younger generation why was that such a big hit by the way Splash I think two reasons well it was a great premise and it was, yeah. there was a lot of charm to it I mean Ron Howard I think is a director who's greatly underrated I mean he's a very very good storyteller and he makes movies that have a, travel a fine lawn in terms of tone and although, um, was it John Candy? Wasn't he? he didn't he play the, his, his brother? He did, yeah. And he has sort of, sort of he's sort of um, the, the character who keeps on looking up girls' dresses when he was a little <laughs> kid. And he was interested in Playboy magazine. And he has to, he, all of a sudden he starts quoting Swedish from some sort of porn movie that he'd seen. <laughs> but the tone of it, even as a 14-year-old kid, I didn't think it was, you know, I didn't, there, were th- there weren't things that I wasn't getting in yeah. the film. And it was, tread that fine line and tone. And Ron Howard does that really, really, really well. And I think the, the character of Tom Hanks is really, really good. I thought the, the, I thought the premise was fantastic. And Daryl Hannah was really, really well cast. And I think what they're doing here by putting Channing Tatum in it is they're literally, they're changing the point of view. Because when I was a 14-year-old boy, Daryl Hannah was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen on screen. Mm-hmm. And if you're a woman or even a guy looking at mm-hmm. Channing Tatum, you go, my God, look at that. That's a merman. You see, and they also and the, what a merman! Yeah, I mean, and the thing is, I don't know who they're going to cast the Tom Hanks character, Tom Hanks role, but again, it is interesting to change the perspective, and I think that's what's really, really good about this realignment we're seeing is you're looking at characters that say, "Well, it's got to be a man." They say, "No, it actually doesn't." Yeah, but then you think of things like, as we touched on earlier on, Ocean's Eleven. Mm. You said, "Well, it doesn't really make any difference if they're men or women." Really, mm. it doesn't. A text in here was talking about one of my favorite movies of all time, Glen Gary, Glen Ross. Yeah. There's an all-female version of that yeah. as a stage show. Yeah. Have you seen that? No, I haven't. It doesn't work. Well, I, yeah, I can see why it wouldn't. But you don't think that, that affects the likes of Ocean's Eleven? Uh, no, no. I mean, the thing is, the, the, role, the, the characters that uh, David Mamet wrote about <clears throat> were was a specifically male environment. I mean, that's testosterone fueled. Mm. And I think if you introduce estrogen to it, it adds a different mix. Whether it works or not is a different matter. But is it something that's done more often on stage? Because there's a female version of The Odd Couple as well. Yeah, I mean, but why not? Because, yeah, I mean, people, yeah. people are people. But I think what, you know, what, what Mamet was on about was sort of this r- rancid testosterone, which is corrosive to American culture. Mm. You know, it was get out there and hunt and kill. Mm-hmm. And I can't imagine anybody 
delivering the performance that Alec Baldwin did in the movie. And I know that wasn't written in the, in the play. That's right. Yeah. But, you know, I think if you were to really, really work at it, you could have, you could have a female actress to come in and do that yeah. in a very, very different way. I mean, you know, another example of it, Simon, is uh, the movie Salt. The yeah. Angelina Jolie um, uh, vehicle from a couple of years ago, that was originally pitched to Tom Cruise. And he seriously considered it. And then he certainly realized uh, it's far too close to Mission Impossible. Really? So they, they said, OK, let's do a rewrite. And the only thing they had to change was the Salt character as a man was a family, was a father, was, a, was, you know, he had a family. And then when they went to remake it, they decided, no, uh, no woman would risk her life if she's a spy, if she's a mother. <laughs> and you're going, well, I think actually that happens in real life <clears throat> quite a lot. Yes, it does. <laughs> yeah. um, Steve Drimlin texted in to say, Derek Zoolander is the only man he wants to see. <laughs> Which I, which I think is brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> um, we were talking earlier on, uh, this is going slightly off topic, but I'd love to get your thoughts on it. You, they're saying that cinema goers, the numbers are dropping mm. in the States. <clears throat> and there was one company in particular who launched this new initiative in the UK uh, where they wanted to make it a more immersive, interactive experience of going to the cinema. So they had, they showed Ghostbusters yeah. in an old library. And right. everybody and everybody dressed up as a Ghostbuster. It's a Rocky Horror Picture Show. Pretty much, <laughs> pretty much. Are you in favour of stuff like that? I mean, the same company did did it showed the Shawshank Redemption, and stripped the audience and made them walk through puddles of water and bare feet to get the prison experience. I'm not that it. desperate to see that movie again. I mean, it's, it's a good really. movie, but I really if there's any movie you're going to be in, it's not that one, is it? <laughs> but having said that, I would swim across the Atlantic Ocean to see Daryl Hannah as a 14 year old. <laughs> Yeah, and again, the choice of Channing Tatum, I mean... But you see, exactly. I mean, the thing is, look at the perspective there. Can you imagine imagine Magic Mike with a woman in the lead role? Do you see what I'm saying? And they're just literally changing changing the perspective because it's much more liberating because all of a sudden you're getting women who are playing different characters. I mean, the thing about um, Lieutenant Ripley in Alien, you wouldn't get Sarah Connor in The Terminator. You wouldn't get Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Half the cast of The Avengers. Um, Game of Thrones. True. You know, uh, Imperator Furiosa from Mad Max. I mean, these are mm. fantastic roles for brilliant actresses. And I think you wouldn't really recognise how brilliant the role is if a guy were to play in it. And yet, going back to Magic Mike, if that was a female version, there'd be murder over the film. Yeah, well, you see, I think it's because we're in the transition period. I mean, in, if we catapult ourselves on 20, 30 years down the road, we will be able to f- facilitate or accept those sort of representations yeah. but right now there's so much at stake <clears throat> and so much to be realigned I don't like using the word corrected but definitely there was an imbalance in the past and looking at a movie like Magic Mike I mean the great thing was when I saw that movie it reminded me of the time that I went to see Thelma and Louise which is one of the most amazing experiences I've ever had in the cinema really? when, when Brad Pitt arrived and when Brad Pitt took off his shirt in the room with, yeah. with Gina <laughs> Davis I've never felt so inadequate in all my life <laughs> And all the women, I went with two girls mm. and they just screamed and hooped and hollered. Of did. And all of a sudden I said, so that's what it's like all the time. You see, so this huge realignment is really, really important. And even even on the topics of, of remakes I spotted earlier on, we've seen the trailer for it, they've remade the Rocky Horror uh, picture show. Really? They have. And Well, good luck to and them And playing there. Frankenfurter. Yeah. Any guesses? None. Laverne Cox. Oh, Okay. You see, <laughs> that, that came out of nowhere. It did completely. <clears throat> I only know this because I auditioned for it, <laughs> and I didn't get it. They didn't call you back. Well, I didn't go for Frankenfurter. Okay, needless to say, but uh, 
that's another the, the remake of the movie and the swap and the yeah. But you see, partner. also I think I think cinema has now reached a stage where it actually can uh, remake. I mean, if you look at theatre, there's we, we call them revivals. Yeah, and books are republished. And operas are reperformed, and I think we're now hitting a stage in cinema where, you know, a remake is not necessarily a problem. Yeah, it's a very good point because I mean they actually have a category now in the Olivier's. Yeah, the best revival, precisely, of a musical, precisely because the theatre wouldn't survive without it, and I think it's just another 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 way of bringing. And I'm not going to sound like a Hollywood studio executive saying it's another way of going to bring a great story to a younger audience. <laughs> but you know, the thing is, kids <clears throat> going into see the cine- going to see Splash will have a great time. That's Especially, true. You know. That's true. Stephen, it's been enlightening. It's been a Stephen pleasure. Stephen Benedict, film lecturer.